Good morning. If you are a guest with us this morning, uh, I would love to invite you to grab a Bible from the pew in front of you, and it's like page 907, 908, 09, somewhere in there. In the Gospel of John, we are studying through and working through John's Gospel and have come to a place, uh, we're at the end, and I don't know how you feel about this, but I, I'm going to miss John's Gospel. I, I, uh, this has been a really rich personal study for me, and I feel like we, we should not be at the end, but this Sunday and next, and we will be, uh, we'll complete our year in, in John's Gospel, so we're in chapter 21, so we've not read the text, which we normally do um, in light of our Advent teaching and so I'll try to walk you through verses 1 through 14 in just a moment, very briefly, but then we're going to settle in on 15 through 19. Last Sunday, we talked about faith. Do you remember what Pastor Allen said at the end of the service? He talked about the uniqueness of the Christian faith, and he said, the Christian faith is not one road that leads to the top of the mountain, just like many other roads. It doesn't really matter. You just get on and, and eventually you'll, you'll make it to the top. He said the Christian faith is not like that, not like that at all. In fact, he said, what's unique about Christianity is that God has come down to us. We, didn't, we could never climb the mountain to get to God, but God in his mercy has come near to us. Emmanuel, God with us, that really is exactly what Christmas is all about. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we thought about last week, we thought about faith. Now, this week we want to think about why God would show mercy to us. Why would He come down? Why, what, why would God come down to rescue and to save? Why would He come down for us when we've been raging against Him since the Garden of Eden? Why would He come down? Pastor Vince used the word a minute ago, because he treasures us, because he loves us, because he treasures people. God comes near, God comes down, because he has chosen to set his affection on us. Our Advent theme today is love, and it comes from the epilogue of John's gospel. Technically, John has really finished his book. You'll remember this from last Sunday, because chapter 20 Right, the, the, the chapter before ended with this summary statement of John's book. He says, I've written, I've, written, I've written this whole gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And by believing, you might have life in his name. Period. End. And you kind of feel like maybe that was supposed to be the end of the book for John. And it sort of is. But then he says, I'm not quite finished. And he writes an epilogue. And authors often do that. Authors will often finish the book with an afterword or an epilogue. And that's exactly what scholars think John is doing here in, verse, in chapter 21 where he picks back up. And, and in this epilogue, what he's doing is he's describing the same theme that's characterized the whole book. That God loves people. That God treasures people. That God has come after us. And so he writes an epilogue to illustrate again and to kind of cement for us in our minds the theme of God's love for people who need to be restored. If the Gospel of John is anything, it really is a love story. 
It's not a hallmark Christmas that's fairly sanitized and sentimental, but it is a real love story about how God pursues and restores and transforms. It's a story of ugly betrayal and deep darkness and shameful rebellion until God comes near, until God comes to rescue. And that's why John 3.16 so beautifully describes the whole book, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And he stepped toward us in Christ. The world was condemned already, so he didn't need to come and condemn us. He came not to condemn, 317 and following says, but to rescue and to save. That's the essence of biblical love. The essence just in one verse, like if you were trying to find one verse of the Bible that would capture what biblical love is, what is the defining, what's a tight defining way to think about biblical love. John 3.16, there's not a better verse. God spends himself, God gives himself, for God so loved the world, you got the motivation and the action of God in one sentence. He loved the world and therefore he gave his only son to buy it back, to rescue, to save. That's the essence of biblical love, spending yourself on behalf of someone else, treasuring somebody so much that you'd be willing to give yourself for them. That's what he did through his son. But then in this epilogue of, of, of John's gospel, we've got in chapter 21, three more defining characteristics of God's love, and I want to roll those out for you this morning. Number one, his love pursues. I want to think about his pursuing his restoring, and then his changing us. Number one, God's love pursues. That is what is characteristic of the, of the love of God. He, he pursues. I think just in this idea, again, you have the uniqueness of Christianity on the table because no other religion in the world claims to have a God who is both infinitely transcendent and far removed but willing to disclose himself and come down and unveil himself and step toward us in relationship. No other, no other religion talks about it like this. No other religion in the world really claims that God is both amazingly and infinitely transcendent and willing to step down and pursue us in relationship. God is pursuing us. The love of God is a pursuing love. Where are you getting this? I'm getting this from verse 1 and verse 14. Look at verse 1, chapter 21, verse 1, and then look at 21 and verse 14. Verse 1 says, Jesus revealed himself again. Verse 14, look for the same word. Now, this was the third time that Jesus did what? Revealed himself. The text says Jesus revealed himself. For the John, the gospel writer, the, the word revealed is loaded with significance. That's why theologians like to point out that the very act of divine revelation is an act of grace. We hear him talk, I hear them talking about this all the time, that what God's doing in the word revelation is he's actually, it's actually an act of grace, that he's stepping toward us. Unless God chooses to step toward us, just think about this big picture. Unless God reveals, 
unless God steps toward Adam and Eve, unless the Son of God, who is the light of the world, overcomes the darkness, unless Jesus pursues the disciples, unless Jesus pursues Peter, there's no restoration coming. I think what's happening here is the word revealed in verse 1 and verse 14 is a clue to us that Jesus isn't just revealing things about himself, he's revealing himself and he's moving toward his people. Jesus is revealing himself and he's pursuing his people. Divine revelation is always about grace. Divine revelation is always about grace. The reason we even have a book in which God has revealed himself, the reason Jesus is the living word of God come to reveal himself is that it's an act of grace. If, if God doesn't tell us, we don't know. That's the difference between him and us. If he doesn't show us, we don't see. If he doesn't speak, we don't hear. If he doesn't come and live among us, we don't get saved. That's divine revelation that's on the move, that's pursuing us. How do you spell love in John's gospel? How do you spell, uh, how do you spell the, the beauty of love in John's gospel? Incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection. It's all one pursuit. From the beginning, from chapter 1 to chapter 21 of John's gospel, what John, John is overwhelmed with the motivation of God. He loves, he treasures, and so he comes to get us. And in the epilogue, that's coming back again. So Jesus doesn't just reveal himself to the disciples once after the resurrection or twice or even three times. The text says here this was the third time, but we're going we're to see in Acts in chapter 1. If you just turn the page in your Bible, you'll see in, in just a, a, a little while Jesus continues to show himself through many times up to, for those 40 days. He's pursuing, he's cementing in their hearts, he's strengthening in their hearts the reality that God has revealed himself for the purpose of grace. So, that was a really long introduction to the first point, um, and now let me show you how he revealed himself. So John says, here's how Jesus revealed himself. He does it in this way. Verse 2, there were seven of them, and Peter says, I'm going fishing. The rest of them say, we're going too. And so they fish, and they fish all night, and how did it go? Not so well. Verse 4, chapter 21, verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus, not yet. So Jesus said to them, did you all catch anything? And they answered, no. He said, try the other side. Try the right-hand side. So they cast out their nets, and it was a massive haul of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved, we think that's John. John, the gospel writer, refers to himself as the disciple. Remember, he's overwhelmed with the love of God. So he just nicknames himself as an author, the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved, verse 7, said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that, it, that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment and, and, and dove in. Well, really, it's not so much that. It's 
the, probably a better translation is he took the, the part of his garment that was folded down because he's fishing. He probably, probably doesn't have anything on up top. He's got his, his uh, garment kind of draping down. So he pulls that all together, tucks it up into his belt area, and then boom, he's into the water to swim to shore because it's the Lord. He's going to see Jesus, the risen Christ. So he swims to shore. And when they got out on land, the rest of them end up, you know, they come in a little later than Peter on the boat. And they all get out, and Jesus has built a fire, and he's going to feed them breakfast. The Son of God, who upholds the world by the word of his power, is going to have a little campfire, breakfast meal, sit and talk. I mean, like if you were the resurrected Son of God, do you have time to make a meal for seven people? That's pretty amazing. So Jesus says, bring some of the fish that you've caught that I kind of helped you catch. And Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net, 153 fish. And then Jesus said, verse 12, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they now knew that it was the Lord. And look at, verse, look at verse 13. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them, and he served them breakfast. With the, he served them bread and fish for breakfast. This was the third time that Jesus revealed himself to them. Verse 14 says, In the Gospel of John, the word, the word revealed is another way of describing God pursuing man. He has pursued us, so much so that he's willing to invite us to a meal. He keeps inviting you over and over and over. He invites us into his grace. He invites us into his miraculous life. He invites us into a life that makes sense of everything. He invites us into a life wherein we trust him with every aspect of our lives. So he pursues, and that's characteristic of the love of God. If you, if you know anything about the love of God, you know that he doesn't just pursue you once. He pursues you again and again. It, isn't that the way that any good love relationship is? Come on. Isn't that the way that any good love relationship is? That, that the person who tired of pursuing kept pursuing in mercy, in love, in treasuring. So it's beautifully characteristic of God, not just to give his only son, John 3, 16, but to pursue us, to pursue the disciples, to reveal himself again, to pursue Peter. Now this is where this is really going. This is the second point. He's pursuing the disciples, but he's pursuing one of them in particular. Verses 15 through 17. Here's the second thing to know about the love of God. His love restores. So when he gets there to us, he's pursuing us. When he overtakes us or when we end up sitting down with him or when we end up seeing him, when he meets us, what does he meet us with? He restores and this is where I really want to drill down for a few minutes this morning. I want to settle in on this idea that the nature of God's love is, re is restorative. 
Human love is not always restorative. In fact, in fact, I feel like I've been learning this my whole life. Human love is often not restorative. It's often destructive. It's often possessive. Like, uh, like the lead character in, in C.S. Lewis's famous novel, Till We Have Faces. Uh, it's a really complicated story, but it's rich. And I'll just sum it up in, in a sentence or two. The ugly princess who wears a veil her whole life finally discovers that even the love she has for other people, her own family, has been possessive and destructive and clingy and demanding and controlling. And that, that is exactly what we learn about human love. That human love is often not restorative. That human love is often possessive. Parents struggle with this all the time. Here's what you need to know about the love of God. Spouses struggle with this all the time. People (laughs) struggle with this all the time. Here's what you need to know about divine love. And this is my prayer today, that we would begin to see more clearly what the difference is between divine love and human love. And the difference is this, that divine love, the love of God, any good, true human love gets itself from the love of God, from divine love who made love and is the you know, origin of love. Divine love, from which all good human love derives, is powerfully restorative and healing and life-giving. That's the difference. Human love, ironically... You can, even, you can even hear this in conversations. You see it in people's lives. I'm doing this because I love you. And then it turns around and sucks the life out of people. That's not good love. But the love of God is powerfully restorative, healing, life-giving. Now look, let me show you why I'm saying this because here's what's happening in the narrative. Peter just denied Jesus two, three weeks ago. We don't know how long exactly. Verse 21 says, after this, but it's not necessarily a chronological immediately after. It really signifies sequence. So sometime in the next couple of weeks, this is when this appearance of Jesus happens to these seven disciples. But whether it's been a week and a half since Peter's denial or two weeks since his denial or three weeks since his denial, what I'm saying is Peter denied Jesus. It was still very fresh in his own heart probably still fresh for Jesus. And yet, Jesus comes to him not to shame him. Not to say in front of the other apostles, well, you ruined it for the church, now the apostles won't even get to be part of the deal. He doesn't say that. Quite the opposite. He loves Peter. He treasures Peter. He wants to publicly restore him. Probably Jesus and Peter have already been reconciled in a face-to-face encounter because Luke 24 describes it that way. 
But here, Jesus wants to secure the importance of divine love as the currency in which the church would, would give and receive and transact all of its dealings. Because we can't offer to others what we don't have, Peter needs to experience the restoring love of the gospel in front of the rest of these disciples. They might even need to remind him in a moment of weakness a year or two later. No, Peter, Jesus restored you. Remember that? So here's where the, here's where the restoration, it starts in verse 15. Here's where the restoration unfolds. They finish eating. And Jesus looks to Simon Peter and says, Simon, do you love me more than these? Now, more than what? We have three options. Do you love me more than these? We have, we have three basic options, probably three or so. Maybe, maybe some more, but these are the main three options you have. Do you love me more than these fishing boats and the nets and the gear and your vocation? Do you love me more than fishing and the sea? That could be option one. Or he could mean, do you love me, Peter, do you love me more than these, more than you love these, these other friends, these other men, these, these other disciples? Do you love me more than you love them? He could mean that. Or here's the third option. And I don't, I don't, I lean away from the first two toward the third option. Here's the third option. Do you love me more than these? Do you, Peter, do you love me more than these men love me? It's the comparative option. Like these men, they love me. Do you love me more than they love me? And, but wait. He couldn't mean by that, well, they score about 94%. I want you to score 100%. He couldn't mean that because he would want, Jesus would want everybody to, live, to love him at what? 100%, right? So if it's this third option, what does it mean? I think it means this. I think he's directly addressing Peter's tendency to overstate his own love and affection for Jesus. So it means this, Peter, do you love me more than these men love me? Be careful how you answer. He's drilling down, listen, he's drilling down into Peter's heart and his identity. He's drilling down into that place where Peter's tendency to overstate his own love for Jesus and his own interest in, and his own willingness to follow Jesus. Like, that's been a characteristic problem of Peter. He's ready, fire, aim, right? That's who he is. Jesus is saying, do you love me more then these, be careful how you answer me. And that's why he repeats the question uh, three times. That's why he asks him three times. So walk through this with me. Verse 15, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Verse 16, well, he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Verse 16, he said to him a second time, 
Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. The third question and answer is not only going to parallel the three denials of Peter and signify full restoration, but watch this, watch, watch the answer, because it brings Peter to a new place. Third time. Verse 17, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Oh, something different. You see it? What's it say? Peter was grieved because he asked this three times. Do you love me? Now, sometimes we get bogged down in the differences between agapao and phileo. The, 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 it, is, it is suggested that there's a different word that's used, and there's purpose and meaning behind that word. I think that's probably not the case. I think the main point here is what we're saying at this moment happens to Peter. Peter is grieved because he's asked three times, and Jesus is bringing him to a place right? Jesus keeps asking because he's trying to get us somewhere. Note to self, Jesus keeps asking because he's trying to get you somewhere. Look at this. The text says Peter was grieved, and then he adds, again, something else that we haven't heard yet. Lord, you know everything. This is not just a simple Bible school answer to the omniscience of God. I think Peter is saying in this moment, Lord, you know everything. You know my loves. You know who I love. You know what I love. I think in this moment what's happening as Peter's grieving and he confesses, Lord, you know everything. I think he finally realizes, I think Peter finally sees he cannot love Jesus in his own strength. I think Peter is grieved and in the process he finally realizes how hollow and fickle his own loyalty can be. I think he finally is letting divine love redefine his human love. That's a major theme in in John's gospel. So what's happening here, what's happening here in verse 17, in this third, do you love me, Peter being grieved, saying, saying, Lord, you, you you know everything means, Lord, you know what my love even is. In fact, it's the restoring love of Jesus that's remaking Peter's own love for Jesus. Let me say that again. I think what's happening here is that the restoring love of Jesus, which has come to Peter three times, is purposefully, it's it's remaking Peter's own understanding of his love for Jesus. So Peter can no longer depend on his own understanding of his love for Jesus and not even trust his own love for Jesus. I could never keep my hold. 
through life's fearful path. My love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He must hold me fast. Peter is learning to no longer trust his own, yes, I love you, Jesus. Jesus is remaking Peter's, yes, I love you. That's what's happening here. And it's a beautiful, amazing reminder to us that human love and divine love are very different. So we're constantly asking God, as you're restoring us, show me what real love looks like. If you want to give somebody an amazing gift this Christmas, and it's going to be expensive, it's going to cost you something. If you want to give someone an amazing gift this, this Christmas, a gift that will last and a gift that will bless them, love them by pursuing them. <laughs> Some of you are like, you know what? I, there's no way I'm loving that person. I know who you're talking about, and I'm not loving that person because I've been burned way too many times. Not doing it. That's human love speaking. The gift of divine love pursues seven times 70 times 70 times 70 and just keeps pursuing. And that is what God has done for you, right? He pursued you. So if you want to give an amazing gift to someone this year, pursue them, give them the gift of pursuing, and then when you get there, restore them. Bring restoration, bring grace, bring peace and mercy. When people see you coming, when they hear you at the beach, when they hear you at the beach saying, come over here, do they sense hospitality and restoration? When they sit across the meal from you, which they've invited you to, and they look eye to eye with you and they speak to you, do they sense warmth and life-giving restoration? Do they sense initiative and grace? And, and do, they, do they sense pursuing, restoring love? Or, or rather, do they see a self-appointed judge coming at them? Do they see a self-righteous person who seems to delight more in pointing out everything that's wrong with everybody? What do they see? So the love that you want to be shown is the same love that I'm encouraging you to give, which is pursuing, restoring love. Now, I know some of you are like, what? but where's the justice? When's the justice going to come? Who's going to point out, listen, the justice came at the cross. Like, you're not going into this blind. You know you were burned. You know you were wronged. And it's true. You might have even been really victimized. But the justice doesn't happen when you exchange justice. It's, it's happening at the cross. And that's why Christianity has so much power to forgive. Because justice is not overlooked. So, the difference between human love and divine love is that divine love, the love of God, is always pursuing, always restoring. And then here's the last point, and we're done. It transforms. 
the last point I want to make is that the love of God always has an end. It's always doing something like an ultimate end, a telos. It's transforming. It's changing people. And you see this all throughout Peter's life. And I just want to point out that three times Jesus says to Peter, feed my sheep, care for my people. I'm giving you this new amazing assignment for your life. And what else would explain why a strong, impulsive, self-centered, rugged fisherman would give the rest of his life to this thing called the church where he'd care about more people and more, he would care more about people and their families than anything else he ever cared about. Why would he start to give himself away? Why would, why would this self-centered, rugged fisherman begin to invest his life in people and care for them and love them? And the answer is that the gospel has transformed him from beginning to end. His life has been so transformed that not only is, is his life going to be one of following Jesus and living like him and caring about people and spending his life and being a shepherd, but he's going to die in the same way that Jesus died. That's why we read verse 18 the way that we do. Peter, truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. Verse 19, parenthetically, John says, just to be clear, this is the kind of death he's going to die to bring glory to God. Meaning, Peter could anticipate that he would live a life of service and then stretch out his arms, the text says. You will stretch out your hands and someone else will carry you to a place you don't want to go. Throughout Christian history, that's been interpreted as Peter dying on a cross like his Savior did, not to atone for anyone's sins, but to demonstrate full surrender to the glory of God, which is who Jesus was. Legendary accounts of Peter have him being crucified upside down because he was not worthy to be crucified in the same manner of Jesus. I'm not sure how reliable those, are, those accounts are. I'm not sure we can trust those, but we do have a high level of certainty, very high level of certainty that he died a martyr's death, probably on a cross. And then Jesus finishes this exchange by saying two words, and they really are the words I want to close with today. Follow me. Look at verse 19. After he said this, he said, follow me. He definitely means more than walk down the beach with me as the scene unfolds. Peter and, uh, Peter and Jesus will be walking down the beach. John will be close behind. John is the disciple whom G who Jesus loved, and we're going to hear more about him next week. Follow me means more than let's go for a walk down this beach. And, and it means more to us than that this morning. In John's gospel, follow me is what is what starts this whole thing in chapter one. And these disciples start following Jesus. 
Peter's going to follow Jesus. Peter's going to follow Jesus with this shadow of martyrdom living over him. He's going to follow Jesus all the way to the end. Will you follow Jesus all the way to the end of your life? Will you follow Christ for your whole life in every aspect of your life? Look, just listen to those two words this morning. Jesus invites you. Jesus is pursuing. Jesus is pursuing. He's restoring. He's calling. He's, he's bringing such change that he's going to say, look, I want instead of walking that way, I want you to follow me and come this way. He's inviting you to change you. And he says those two words. So I want to pray those two words for you this morning, whether you're a believer already or whether you're somebody who's been sort of nominal and on and off, kind of on and off Christian, or whether or not you've been faithful. I want to pray these two words, no matter where you are, let's pray together and ask God to bring them to life in us. In fact, let me ask you, just in the quietness of this moment, would you Would you be willing, and no, nobody, yeah, we're, we're, not, we're not doing this out loud. I do not want to embarrass you. I want to encourage you to talk to the Lord. What, what if you just said, God, I, Jesus, I want to follow you today. I want to follow you faithfully. And I want to follow you for my entire life from beginning to end, from right now to the very end. No matter what it would cost me, I want to follow you faithfully. Jesus, we want to follow you faithfully all the way to the end. We pray in Christ's name.